Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's 6.52 on the cold morning of the 2nd of April, 1931, Easter Thursday, and the Burnsfield motor liner Malabar has almost reached its Sydney Harbour stop on its voyage from Melbourne to Singapore. The ship's commanded by Captain George William Leslie, who, at age 71, has been a master mariner for nearly half a century. Malabar carries 28 passengers. Among them is Mr H Trotter, aptly named because he has charge of three racehorses bound for Darwin. Also Darwin-bound is bride-to-be Miss Mary Stern, whose luggage includes her wedding dress and glory box. Mr Tivendale, meanwhile, who's returning home to Darwin, is one of the three gentlemen passengers who are shipping their motorcars aboard Malabar. The big vessel also carries 2,000 tonnes of consumable cargo. Every kind of foodstuff imaginable. All that good tucker passing right by southern Sydney, where starvation is a very real threat for many poor families who are being pummeled ever harder by the Great Depression. About two miles off Long Bay, fishermen in their boats see Malabar entering thick fog that's just rolling in. Malabar isn't east of these fishermen. It's to their west and too close into shore. If she keeps going like she's going, she's going to hit Long Bay's north head, known as Miranda Point. Aboard Malabar, Captain Leslie, who has minutes ago relieved his chief officer, gives an order to alter course. But what is it that he tells the quartermaster who has the wheel? Is it to steer five degrees starboard, that is right, towards the ocean? Or does he say steer five degrees to port, left, towards the shore? This is the question that'll be asked later. Right now, the quartermaster turns the wheel to port, towards the shore. Malabar is carving through calm high tide waters at nearly full speed, 13 knots, and moments later it runs up onto the rocky reef below Miranda Point. For most passengers, the impact registers as little more than a soft bump. But Captain Leslie knows what's happened. He orders the engines full astern, trying to reverse off the rocks. But it's no good. Malabar is stuck fast, just 50 yards off Miranda Point. While the impact might have felt minor to most passengers, it's buckled the ship's plates and water is surging into the holds. Captain Leslie orders the siren sounded. Everyone must abandon ship immediately. When the fog lifts this Easter Thursday morning, the people of Long Bay are stunned. There's a massive shipwreck right on the doorstep of their little village. They're the first to see it, but in the hours and days to follow, Malabar will become Sydney's most popular attraction. More memorable and certainly more exciting than the Royal Easter Show, which is opening to the public this very day. Sample bags simply can't compare with the bounties that are about to wash free from Malabar. Bags of flour, bundles of firewood, tins of butter and beef, and frozen legs of lamb. These are just some of the goodies that will put smiles on poor people's dials all along the Sydney coastline. But the real prizes will be the full kegs of beer. 
Score one of these before the cops lay their mitts on them, and you'll be in for a really good Good Friday. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. Thank you so much for listening in 2023. I've really appreciated the kind words that have come via email and Facebook, and through reviews on Apple Podcasts and other audio platforms. A big thanks to everyone who's chipping in as a supporter via Apple and Patreon. Cheers then to Bill Saunders and Jade Mustard, who've recently become supporters. And a big, big thank you to Tony Mott, who's a real champion of the show. If you'd like to help me keep making Forgotten Australia in 2024, Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. As a thank you, you'll get early ad-free access to every episode, along with exclusive bonus shows. And there's more of these on the way soon. In the final week of 2023, many of you will have, like me, been pondering the white Christmas mystery. Of course, I'm talking about those barnacle-encrusted, plastic-wrapped bales of cocaine bricks that have been washing up on beaches between Sydney and Newcastle. At the time of recording, some 124 kilograms of the drug have been retrieved. How much is all that blow worth? The upper estimate, based on $400 a gram on the street, is some $50 million. In other words, enough for a house deposit in Sydney. Jokes aside though, questions abound. Who imported the cocaine? Where did it come from? And how did it end up in the ocean? How many more of these bundles are still out there? How many, if any, have been found but not reported? Even among law-abiding types like you and me, the scenario fires the imagination in the style of some grim Hollywood thriller. Think A Simple Plan or No Country for Old Men. But for almost everyone, a brief what-if is as far as such contemplations going to go. Yet my guess is that there are a few folks out there patrolling Sydney's seaside with dollar signs in their eyes. It was really odd timing that this cocaine story should bob up during the creation of this episode. While the Malabar incident of close to a century ago was far more innocent, it was also far more inclusive. It was a communal event, turning hundreds of thousands of people into beachcombers and seafarers. Most weren't hoping to get rich, or to party like Pablo Escobar. Most were just hoping to get something, at a time when they had a whole lot of nothing. In April 1931, the motor vessel Malabar was the pride of the fleet owned and operated by Burns Philp. This was the company that had dominated maritime trade in the South Pacific for nearly 50 years. Malabar was built in Glasgow in 1925 and put into service in Australia the following year. The ship was valued at £220,000 and it was insured for that amount. Simply adjusted for inflation, that's $20 million. Malabar was a fine, two-masted motor liner, meaning it ran on oil, not steam and its single funnel bore the distinctive black-and-white checkered band of the Burnsfield line. Malabar was 350 feet long, that's about 100 metres, and it was 50 feet across with a depth of 25 feet to the upper deck. Malabar's gross tonnage was a little over 4,500 tonnes, so it was a big vessel. Yet Malabar took its name from a small place, 
a little town in Java about 20 miles southwest of Bandung. That's what reports said at the time. It's subsequently been reported that the name came from a stretch of Indian coast famous for spice trading. Whatever the origin, Malabar was chosen as a name because it was the Burnsfilp custom to give ships seven-letter names that began with M. So I guess officials looked to maps and to their maritime memories for inspiration. In any case, Malabar's name was to live on in Sydney maps. And we'll return to this at the end of the episode. The motor liner Malabar plied the Melbourne-Sydney-Brisbane-Darwin-Java-Singapore route. Until recently, it had been under the command of a Captain Rotheree. But he'd been relieved by Captain George Leslie when Malabar was last in Sydney on its way south to Melbourne. According to New South Wales public service records found at Ancestry.com.au, George William Leslie was born in South Australia on the 30th of December 1860. He got his Master Mariner's license in 1886 and he captained several big cargo and passenger vessels for the Adelaide Steamship Company. Captain Leslie would often do the route that took him to Melbourne, Sydney, Newcastle, Brisbane, and then farther north to Mackay and Townsville. It's fair to say he knew the coastal waters of Australia's eastern colonies like the back of his salt-encrusted hand. Captain Leslie moved to New South Wales just after Federation, March 1901, in order to join the State Department of Navigation as a first-class harbour pilot. He served at Newcastle for a dozen years. Then, in 1913, Captain Leslie was appointed as a sea pilot in Sydney, based out of Port Jackson. He served another dozen years and was promoted to the position of senior harbour pilot not long before he retired on the 30th of December 1925, his 65th birthday. For a quarter of a century, Captain Leslie had made an impeccable record as a harbour pilot, safely guiding vessels in and out of New South Wales's two busiest ports. While he might have had to retire from the public service, Captain Leslie had brine in his veins, and he wasn't about to hang up his skipper's cap for good. So he continued working as a relieving master for Burns Philp. Under his command, Malabar departed Melbourne on the 31st of March 1931. There were 28 passengers aboard. This was only 20% of capacity, Malabar having accommodation for 130 paying customers. Nevertheless, Malabar was staffed by its full complement of 108 crew. While the senior officers were Caucasian, the bulk of the men working aboard were Javanese and Malaysian Chinese. In the racist terminology of the day, they would be described in newspaper reports as coolies or as coloured men. While they were in Australian waters, Burnsfield had to put up a £100 surety for each of these crew members. This bond, which was dictated by immigration law, made the company take seriously the possibility of its men jumping ship and thus threatening the purity of white Australia. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. With Captain Leslie, 108 crew, 28 passengers, 3 horses, an indeterminate number of caged finches and one ship's cat, Malabar motored up the east coast for a couple of days without incident. At 6.45 on Easter Thursday morning, Malabar was one mile off Cape Banks, which is the northern headland of Botany Bay. Up ahead, the north head of narrow, long bay jutted out into the sea. Conditions were calm and clear. Malabar wasn't the only craft in the waters at this hour. Long Bay's little fishing fleet had headed out before dawn. They were hoping for a huge haul, knowing they'd sell it all, even in these depressed times. For tomorrow was Good Friday, the one day of the year when Jesus didn't want anyone tucking into snags and chops. One of these fishermen, a Mr R.M. Walsh, was two miles off the entrance to Botany Bay when Malabar passed between him and the shore. A few minutes later, a heavy bank of fog descended, and he said to his mates, If she goes on that course, she'll run ashore. At 6.54, Malabar did just that. Mr Walsh and his fellow fishermen gave up their hopes of a bumper haul and rushed to help however they could. Malabar had come aground on rocks near a blowhole known to the locals as Little Bombara. Captain Leslie ordered the engines full astern, but to no avail. The impact had been so soft that most Malabar passengers initially had no idea they were now aboard a hopelessly shipwrecked vessel. Just minutes before the collision, Malabar's chief stewardess, Mrs A. Davidson, had gone onto deck to see how close they were to Sydney. There was a thick mist out and she couldn't see anything so she went back to her room. That was when Mrs Davidson felt the bump. It was so minor she thought she was hearing and feeling hatch covers being removed which was procedure shortly before entering ports. To her astonishment, a purser appeared and told her in excited tones, She's on the rocks. Nonsense, Mrs. Davidson snapped. But the purser said it was true, telling her, You had better wake all the women and children at once. Seeing he was serious and hearing the emergency siren, Mrs. Davidson got to work. 
The crew, she'd soon be telling the Sydney Morning Herald, were all marvellous, ensuring the passengers were roused, put on their life belts, and at once got into the boats. The crew swung the boats out and lowered them into the water, where motorised fishing vessels towed them to Long Bay's little beach. Mrs Davidson would tell the Sydney Morning Herald, quote, We were all ashore within 20 minutes, which is particularly good when you remember that many of the passengers were only half-dressed, that some were in bed and some were in the bath. The passengers themselves were wonderful. There was not the faintest trace of panic. In fact, we were rather sorry we missed our breakfast. By the time the passengers reached shore, Long Bay locals awaited with blankets and warm drinks. Some of the newly minted refugees thought the disaster was rather jolly fun. The Sun reported, quote, Two young women were delightedly excited with their experience. They gladly accepted an invitation from Long Bay women to have some refreshments, and as soon as they were seated, they lit cigarettes and puffed contentedly. The Daily Telegraph would chime in about the younger generation, quote, Several children romped contentedly about the beach, clad in pyjamas and overcoats. Shipwrecks, they thought, were quite enjoyable. Yet not everyone was so sanguine. Miss Mary Stern, that bride-to-be, was terribly worried about her wedding dress and her glory box. Were these precious items to be lost on Malabar? Meanwhile, Mr Trotter fretted about his three horses. He hitched a ride back out to Malabar on a boat, asking permission to come aboard so he could untie the beasts, at least giving them a chance if Malabar should sink or break up. Mr Trotter was turned away, told it was far too dangerous to get back on the ship. And it was dangerous. Crew were still trying to get ashore, and some had a hectic time of it. One boatload was drifting perilously towards the blowhole until a couple of fishermen threw them a rope and towed them to safety. When the fog lifted from Long Bay properly, Malabar was listing 20 degrees towards starboard. By then, nearly the entire population of Long Bay had plotted through the best part of two miles of soggy scrub to the sheer cliffs that formed a dress circle for the disaster unfolding. Just 50 yards away, Malabar was centre stage of a spectacular drama, the surrounding sea an arena that was alive with a flotilla of small boats affecting rescues and recoveries. At 10 o'clock, a new character entered. This was the trawler Charlie Cam, which had been summoned to Long Bay to try to free Malabar. A steel hawser was attached to the stricken ship's stern. Charlie Cam pulled, but the strain was too great and the cable snapped with a loud bang that rang across Long Bay. Malabar wasn't going anywhere. Next, the pilot steamer Captain Cook arrived from Sydney Harbour. This was one of the vessels that Captain Leslie would have skippered in safer and happier days. Today, Captain Cook was on hand to save Malabar's crew and portable valuables. Crew first loaded passengers' luggage and the ship's mails into five lifeboats that were roped together. Then, nearly four dozen of the non-Caucasian crew climbed into the lifeboats along with a smattering of senior officers. Captain Cook towed the convoy to Walsh Bay. Miss Mary Stern's wedding dress and glory box had been saved. The non-white crew, meanwhile, were kept under strict watch in Sydney, in case any of them should bolt for it. At 10.30 that morning, a journalist from the Sun got out to Malabar and climbed up a Jacob's Ladder. He wrote, 
The liner was lurching helplessly. All alleyways were deserted, and on the well deck, the racehorses in their boxes were pouring the deck fretfully. Captain Leslie was another anxious creature, pacing the boat deck aft. The captain didn't want to speak to the man from the sun, other to say that everyone was safe. You must leave the ship, Captain Leslie ordered, and leave it quickly. The sun's reporter obeyed. He had everything he needed. And it really was too dangerous to still be aboard. The growing crowd thrilled to more drama at 11 o'clock when Malabar lurched suddenly and violently. The Sun's reporter noted it was as if the ship was, quote, trying to wrench herself from the cruel fangs that enclosed her. Two men from the engine room, one a Bondi bloke and the other from Mittagong, appeared simultaneously at different places on the deck. They'd been down below when Malabar had bucked and now they were panicking. One of the men climbed up on the rail, paused and then plunged, as the sun described, into the boiling green and white cauldron that separated the rolling, grinding vessel from the dread rocks. The other fellow did likewise from a railing further forwards. The crowds watched breathlessly as these two men swam desperately for shore. The waters, local surf club members said gravely, were shark infested. But death by drowning or death by being dashed against rocks seemed far more likely. One of the men swam strongly to the shore, but the other was soon in trouble and calling out for help. Weighed down by his sodden clothes and boots, he was being pushed under by the force of the big green rollers. Members of Maroubra Surf Club got down to the rock shelf and tried to use a coat as a life rope, but the flailing man couldn't grab onto it. At great personal risk, surf lifesaver Reg Hardman dived into the boiling sea amid a storm of cheers from the crowd. Reg grabbed the chap and dragged him to the rocks, where other lifesavers hauled him out and successfully performed resuscitation. The rescue of the horses was every bit as dramatic. The trio of beasts was taken to the water-lapped rear deck by members of the brave skeleton crew. The horses were urged into the sea. The Sun told readers, quote, A rowing boat took each horse in tow and the animals started the long swim to shore. Quivering and with nostrils extended, they battled on over the long distance. One showed signs of exhaustion when only halfway, but he struggled on and reached the shore, clambering safely to the rock ledge. The other horses swam right onto the beach. There was another round of cheers that all three horses had won the most important race. As for the other animals aboard Malabar, the finches had been set free by their owners before they abandoned ship. These birds had flown to freedom. But the ship's cat? No one knew what had become of it. It couldn't be found. Everyone hoped it had managed to stow away on a boat and then had scampered off once ashore. Before midday, Burns Philp Company representatives came aboard Malabar. They declared the ship a total loss. After that, the skeleton crew departed, with a forlorn Captain Leslie the last to leave his stricken vessel. During the afternoon, a stiff southwesterly made the sea very choppy, and waves broke ever higher over Malabar. When the surging sea sucked back out and the rock was exposed, it showed that fully one-fifth of the ship's shattered hull, some 70 feet of steel, rested on the reef. Malabar now had a list of 45 degrees. By 3 o'clock that afternoon, there were some 200 cars parked along the cliffs, and the crowd was estimated at 1,000 people. 
but Sydney was just getting started. The city's new... Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. These men had been on the scene from the first, and they were relaying updates and pictures to their editors. This was that rare disaster that could really be enjoyed. There'd been no loss of human life or even any serious injuries. It wasn't really a tragedy so much as a spectacle that was unfolding slowly and conveniently within range of the most basic of cameras. All of this happening right on the city's front doorstep. The Sun would lead the newspaper coverage with that afternoon's front page headline, Malabar, total wreck on reef at Long Bay. Over the days to come, there would be dozens and dozens of startling newspaper photos of lifeboats, of crew and passengers, of swimming men and swimming horses, and of the massive crowds and immense piles of debris stacking up on beaches. The most striking images, though, would be of Malabar, this immense vessel you could almost reach out and touch from the cliffs, even as it fought to the last against the power and force of the elements. Journalists would write tens of thousands of words about the shipwreck that would be read all around Australia. As night fell on Easter Thursday, it was believed Malabar would heel over further starboard and would capsize. But Mother Nature had other ideas. A near hurricane force wind blew in and righted the ship so that waves could pound it to pieces all the better. Despite these furious freezing conditions, hundreds of onlookers remained huddled along the cliffs, starting little fires for warmth. The Sun reported, those who saw the end of the Malabar will not quickly forget the experience. A bitterly cold wind howled around the jutting sandstone borders on top of the northern head. The sea, which had been blue and calm during the day, became a seething, crashing mass. From the black fastnesses of the Pacific came tremendous white-crested waves, roaring defiance as they hurled themselves against the ragged facade of yellow rock. Rockets of spray rose, glistening, and tumbled in a racing mist before the wind. Malabar's back broke just after midnight. Here's the sun again. The wave which carried the final destructive blow struck the liner with a mighty roar. When the spray cleared away, watchers on the cliffs saw the vessel break at the bridge. The bows remained fast on the rocks, while the rest of the ship swung around towards the jagged cliffs. Another tremendous wave smashed the vessel at the aft end of the promenade decks. The stern and well-decked portions turned turtle and disappeared. A third pounding wave smashed the Malabar amidships, and the after-half, with the chequered funnel, was swallowed up by the boiling sea. Hundreds more waves smashed in. But through them all, somehow, a small Union Jack survived. As dawn broke on Good Friday, this flag fluttered over the smashed woodwork and twisted metal. By then, the middle part of the ship had broken free and sunk in deep water. The aft and forward parts were jammed together. Malabar had been cracked open like an early Easter egg and was spilling its goodies into the ocean. Good Friday newspapers, 
The Sun, the Sydney Morning Herald and the Daily Telegraph flew out of the hands of newsboys as radio broadcasts crackled from wireless sets all across Sydney. The hundreds who'd stood vigil at Long Bay overnight were soon joined by thousands and then by tens of thousands. For the first time in its history, the Royal Easter Show had a major competitor. City and suburban private bus proprietors put signs in their windows that simply read, To Shipwreck. They charged one shilling and six for a ride, and these buses were packed. The Sun that day reported, quote, Only one road led to the Malabar, and it was choked with a hurrying stream of vehicles, antiquated sulkies jostling for place with limousines, while hundreds of other spectators poured out of trams and buses. When the cars could go no further, fathers shouldered their children, and helping hands were freely offered across the rough stretches. Desire to see the spectacle was a great leveller. The Sun reported, Society folk discussed the disaster with fishermen, and people in costly furs shivered alongside beggars in their rags. Cottage industries seemed to spring up in seconds. Enterprising people setting up stalls to flog hot dogs and hot cross buns, cups of tea and coffee. One sandwich vendor was mobbed, while another chap did a roaring trade selling cheap telescopes. The equivalent of sideshows also entertained the crowd, with musicians playing their instruments and passing around hats for pennies, while a snake charmer made the most of his large captive audience. By the end of the day, the Sun would report, more than 100,000 people had visited Long Bay. The Sydney Morning Herald would put the figure at 150,000. What was the real figure? Who cared? The big question was, who owned the spoils now washing up on the shores? It wasn't like water-damaged goods could be retrieved and resold. The Sun helpfully told readers it was finders keepers. Yet, there were important exceptions. These were higher value items that might attract duty. In particular, kegs of beer and rum and bottles of wine and spirits. The police were under orders from the customs department, it seemed, though no one was exactly sure, to destroy or confiscate such items. As for the more general stuff being scavenged, the sun sounded a positively socialistic note. Quote, The wreck of the Malabar will bring joy to many a poor home tonight. Individual search soon gave place to collective efforts, and little groups working together had soon amassed large heaps of tin provisions, lactogen, butter, jam and biscuits. Long Bay homes should not want for firewood too for many weeks. Fittings of all kinds were also salvaged, with clothes, pieces of furniture and tablecloths. It wasn't only Long Bay that was getting Malabar's flotsam. Currents quickly took the debris north, to Coogee, Bondi, in through the Sydney Heads to Harbour Beaches, and north to Manly and Dee A Malabar butcher's block would also be found as far north as Newcastle. All along the coastline, thousands of people patrolled the beaches or took to the water in canoes and small craft. If it looked like a boat, or had any sort of buoyancy, people would beg, borrow and steal so they could get in on the fun. No one wanted to miss out. A Sydney Morning Herald writer said that this was the strangest flotilla Sydney had ever seen. Tins of food, butter, biscuits, spaghetti, beans, bobbed in hundreds of crates. These were scooped up. Individual tins that had come free of crates and sunk were rescued from the seafloor by enterprising salvagers using magnets on dredge lines. 
boats returned to shore packed to the gunnels with sea treasure. Cars and lorries, prams, barrows and billy carts, basically anything that had wheels, were used to take away the catch to homes and businesses. At Manly, 850-pound bags of flour, along with hundreds of cases of tinned butter and dripping and tins of lactogen and condensed milk washed up on the shore. A small army descended and they got to work. One beachcomber was said to have sold 240 pounds of butter for a handsome six pounds. Across the harbour, at Watson's Bay, the waters and sand were turned white by burst bags of flour. There, it was reported that the average household ended up with four pounds of butter. One bloke scored a tonne. Others were said to have done even better. While all of these free foodstuffs were certainly welcome and made for great newspaper reading, it was reports of civilians and cops battling it out over beer that provided the most colour and comedy. In its report on the scene at Long Bay on Good Friday, the Sydney Morning Herald had noted, quote, Early in the day, interest became focused on round wooden objects that bobbed about in friendly fashion in the waves. They seemed to beckon to be rescued, and lifesavers were not lacking. All of Sydney's newspapers carried stories about what happened when men tried to get their hands on this boozy bounty of the sea. The Sun reported, quote, Comedy mingled with the tragedy of the Malabar's end when a barrel of beer was seen to be drifting ashore and an enterprising party marked it out as a special prize. Groans arose as the barrel was knocked against the rocks, but it was safely hauled out and hidden away under guard. Then, along came a callous policeman who heartlessly stove in the bottom of the barrel. Men bared their heads as the amber fluid slowly trickled back to the sea whence it had come. But not every beer retrieval ended on such a sad and sour note. The Sydney Morning Herald told readers that a large keg of Victorian beer had become stuck in a cliff cleft and locals had carefully noted its position and set about planning the rescue. A dozen men and boys were on the job, but when they clambered down, one of their number was washed into the surging sea and nearly drowned. But he survived, unscathed but dazed, and rejoined his mates. Nothing was going to stop him. He and his friends got the keg up the rock face in a sling made from a stout bag, the Sydney Morning Herald. It took six men to lift the precious burden, which by slow stages was carried up the headland. A large crowd followed it. Near the top, a halt was called. Someone produced a large piece of wood. The cork was struck a hefty blow, and a cascade of beer rose in the air and fell on the crowd. A two-ounce pannikin was produced and handed around. After everyone there had had a slurp, the core beer scavengers hustled their prize off to a shed and locked themselves in. Then a policeman turned up. A cry went up as the onlookers scattered. The copper entered the shed. Clearly, this officer was a good sport, or open to a little bribe, the Sydney Morning Herald. He remained in the shed a couple of minutes, then discreetly walked away and out of sight. The crowd, like bees round a honeypot, gathered again. Billies appeared magically, were passed through a window, and came out full and frothing. The Herald was similarly admiring, quote, There was a delightful lack of formality in the disposal of this keg, and an utter absence of selfishness. The Sydney Illustrated News ran a photo of a couple of skinny surf lifesavers in bathing togs, urgently rolling a beer keg along a slick stretch of Bondi sand amid onlookers. But they hadn't been fast enough. The caption noting that soon after the picture was taken, the police intervened and smashed open the barrel. 
A Daily Telegraph story was headlined, Sea Gave Up Its Pearls. Quote, The fishing was particularly good yesterday at Ben Buckler. The day's haul included several barrels of beer ex-Malabar. Men risked their lives for it. The report said fellows had dived into mountainous seas. One bloke, quote, gladly sacrificed 10 inches of flesh from wrist to funny bone to clasp the treasure. On a precipitous ledge, the Daily Telegraph continued, a rescued barrel was, quote, opened with great ceremony and, as from the air, someone spirited an ordinary kitchen jug. The article reckoned that 30 gallons were sculled quick smart. It said that half a dozen fellas had done this guzzling, which seems a little hard to credit even in the days of the six o'clock swill. One of these sozzled celebrants staggered into the sea, disappeared under a huge breaker, was feared to be lost before he stumbled back out and up the beach, no worse for wear and seemingly oblivious that he'd nearly drowned for the drink. Three other barrels, the Daily Telegraph said, were grabbed by the long arm of the law when they came ashore while another keg was, at the time of deadline, quote, hanging temptingly on the fringe of the breaking surf. A dozen men were ready, aye, and waiting. Additionally, the Daily Telegraph reported, over at Tamarama, 10 blokes had attacked a 25-gallon keg of beer that had washed up. These coves had got a few solid hours drinking in before the fun police turned up to break up their party. Further north, at D.Y., so many barrels came ashore that surf lifesavers buried them in the sand, the idea being they'd come back and retrieve them when the heat had died down. The surf lifesavers were smart enough to keep their stash a secret. Problem was, D.Y. was that night lashed by a storm that shifted tons and tons of sand. The next morning, the poor lifesavers dug and dug, but couldn't find their kegs. While all of this beer chasing was going on, Malabar kept on keeping on as an attraction. On Saturday the 4th of April, the Daily Telegraph's lengthy update began, quote, Like a gallant world champion being battered into submission by the flailing gloves of an inexorable opponent, yet refusing to admit defeat, the wreck of the line of Malabar at Long Bay late last night was still defiant of the shattering, pounding seas. Crowds surged in and stayed all day until dark, when there was a rush for cars, buses and trams. The result was the biggest traffic jam in Sydney's history. When this human tide had receded, it left behind a young mystery man. He was English. You could tell that by his accent. But that was all you could tell, because he couldn't tell you anything himself. Not who he was, not where he was from, not how he'd come to be wandering around without any memory. This amnesiac was taken to the coast hospital and his description was given to the newspapers in the hope that someone would be able to identify him. There was more human drama the next day, Easter Sunday, when that snake charmer was bitten by one of his pet performers. The reptile fancier applied his own antidote before he lapsed into a coma. Ambulance officers whisked him to the coast hospital. He came good and he'd be back to snake charming on Monday. Every bit as unstoppable as that herpetologist was the Union Jack flag that still fluttered over Malabar, even though waves measuring 50 feet high were reportedly regularly breaking over it and over the wreck. The seas at Long Bay settled on Monday. By now, the sun reckoned, 300,000 people had come to see Malabar at Long Bay. 
Not to be outdone, the Daily Telegraph put the crowd at 500,000. If that was right, then close to half of Sydney's population had turned out. While Malabar was still visible, the sun said that, quote, barely a stick remains of the debris that had littered the coast for miles. Everything that could be eaten, drunk, burned, wrapped around you, used to repair a chicken coop or a shed, had been spirited away. Yet there might still be things of worth on the Malabar itself. Not that it would be worth very much. The ship, which had been valued at £220,000, was sold for £140 to the Penguin Salvage Company. Whatever cargo or luggage might remain in holds or cabins was sold for the princely sum of £41 to a Mr C.H. Sutton. Now these goods were officially the property of new owners, scavenging on the wreck or on the shores constituted theft and was punishable by law. But this threat didn't stop a 25-year-old chap named Henry Charles Primer coming from Waterloo on the 10th of April to see if he could grab a souvenir from Malabar. Henry left a tunic, trousers, bottle of tea and bag of sandwiches on the rocks near the blowhole. When he was never seen again, his identity was established from these items by his wife and his brother. The salvage of Malabar was briefly interrupted by the fruitless search for Henry's remains. Poor Henry, presumably drowned or eaten by a shark, was never found. He was the only direct fatality of the Malabar disaster. When the salvage resumed, the prize item rescued via Flying Fox was that Union Jack flag. Its retrieval was cheered by a crowd of 3,000 people. Also recovered around this time, the identity of that amnesiac fellow. He'd been transferred to the Darlinghurst Reception House, which was where Sydney's mentally ill were assessed. There, he was visited by people who ran a Sydney boarding house. One of their lodgers hadn't come back from his day out on Saturday the 4th of April, and he fit the description in the newspapers. When the boarding house keepers spied the man, they knew exactly who he was. Albert Blassington, an English tourist who'd come to Sydney from New Zealand in the middle of March. That was all well and good, but Albert didn't recognise them at all, nor did he remember himself. Not until the boarding house keepers told him that he'd played dominoes at their place. At the mention of that word, dominoes, all of Albert's memories came flooding back. On Saturday the 4th of April, he said he'd gone out to have a look at Malabar. On the way, he'd accepted a lift from three men in a car. These fellows had looked respectable. Until that was, they conked him over the head and stole his money. Oddly, Albert Blassington, who also described himself as having suffered serious war trauma, did not want the police to be involved in this alleged crime. So that left just one final case connected with Malabar the one against Captain George William Leslie, who was charged with negligence that had caused the disaster in the first place. The Court of Marine Inquiry heard the case against him on the 15th of April. Malabar's chief officer testified that at 6.45 on the morning of Thursday the 2nd of April, he'd handed over control to Captain Leslie. Malabar had then been off Cape Banks, the northern entrance to Botany Bay, and the weather had been clear. Ahead lay Miranda Point, the northern point of Long Bay. The chief officer said he hadn't brought this to Captain Leslie's attention because he assumed the master could see it as plainly as he could. Miranda Point was a mile and a half distant. 
The chief officer said that the course then being steered should have taken Malabar half a mile off Miranda Point. He said, The master relieved me to allow me to go down and have a shave and clean up. Five minutes later, I heard the master give the order, Port 5 degrees. A long blast of the whistle followed, and about two minutes after, I heard the vessel grounding. I went straight up to the bridge, and the captain told me to get the boats swung out. Just after the chief officer had left the bridge, a fog had rolled in. The quartermaster who had the wheel said that Captain Leslie had given three orders. At 6.50, he'd said, Starboard, 5 degrees, steady north, 5 degrees east. Two minutes later, the captain had said, Starboard, 5 degrees, steady north. Then, at 6.54, he'd said, Port, 5 degrees. The quartermaster had been in the action of turning the wheel to carry out this order when Malabar had run aground. Another quartermaster corroborated this account. An engine room officer testified that Malabar had been going close to full speed, a little over 13 knots. Captain Leslie denied giving conflicting orders. He said that he'd never ordered the quartermaster to turn to port. The man had done it by mistake instead of turning to starboard. Captain Leslie's legal defender played the race card by claiming that the quartermaster, who was Malaysian, was maliciously lying and was being corroborated out of loyalty by his countrymen. The court did not believe this. Captain George William Leslie was found to have been negligent. The court found he should have steered well clear far earlier and that he should have slowed right down as soon as fog began to limit visibility. Captain Leslie had served as a master mariner for nearly 50 years, but his career ended with his license being cancelled. Yet, if you'd asked a lot of people in New South Wales, they might have said that Captain Leslie was a bit of a hero. His folly had put food in their bellies and beer into their mugs. Captain Leslie was even more of a hero to a select few, those being residents of Long Bay. While their village was officially known as Brand, they hated that it was colloquially known as Long Bay, just like the jail. Try telling someone you live at Long Bay and see how long it is before they make a joke. Malabar had put them on the map for a very different reason, and now they wanted Malabar put on the map. In September 1933, the residents of Brand a.k.a. Long Bay, successfully petitioned the New South Wales government for the name of their suburb to be changed. Malabar existing under that name is Captain Leslie's legacy. The last recorded flotsam from Malabar was found a decade after that name change. In December 1943, a party of soldiers was driving a lorry load of sand from D.Y. Beach when their wheels got stuck. Digging at this obstruction, they uncovered a 36-gallon keg of beer from Malabar. This was wartime. War was thirsty work, the soldiers were brave, and, well, beer was beer. So how was that brew after 12 long years in the sand? The Sunday Guardian quoted one soldier as saying, It had a beautiful head on it. Closing in on a century since Sydney's happiest disaster, Malabar still provides spectacle to scuba divers. As for the debris and flotsam that reach shore, it's a good bet that bits of the ship and its cargo can still be found in Sydney's sheds, gardens and on mantelpieces. No doubt there are scenes of the Malabar's destruction in many photo albums, 
because thousands of individuals took their cameras out to Long Bay during Easter of 1931. Who knows, there might even be a keg of beer still buried under the sand somewhere. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'm working on new episodes, but I'll be re-releasing an archived episode to keep you going through the next few weeks. All the very best for the new year, and as always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.